0: Hello, and welcome to the Let's Hear It podcast. What did you think of the last episode? Jim Morlino took us to the open seas in mother culture. Carl Safina's essay on the importance of family and connection for the sperm whale. We can certainly learn a few lessons from those magnificent creatures. Tell us what you think on Twitter and Facebook, at Let's Hear It Audio. Today we turn our attention back to home soil, and the making of a California prison town. With Sarah Tory's 2017 essay, if you don't want us, tell us to go back. Sarah Tori weaves the story of one man's journey from Ghana to the US, escaping persecution in search of a new home, before coming to the conclusion that sometimes what's better is the devil you know. As you will hear, Sarah Tori details the importance of the detention system for the livelihood of one small California town, and how the same system acts to keep detainees within prison-like conditions for months, even years at a time, isolated from legal assistance. Enmeshed in a complicated web of political, corporate and government interests, the subject of the story, Abdul Khan, whose name has been changed for privacy, comes to the conclusion that he would rather go back and face the danger in Ghana then face the unyielding legal and corporate machine that is the US immigration system. Though this story was written in 2017, with research stretching back before its publication date, the immigration and detention system has seen little change in the subsequent years, instead often appearing in the news for its cruel and inhuman treatment of individuals, separation of families, and judgment of those looking for a better life. The politics of the detention system transcend national interest and pivot into the palms of for-profit corporations. What you'll hear is just one example of a community relying on the detention system for money, jobs and livelihood, juxtaposed alongside asylum seekers and immigrants within the system at the mercy of the same. I'll let Charles Gray give you the rest of Sarah Torrey's essay. Sarah Torrey is a freelance journalist. Based in Colorado, she is a lover of the outdoors and focuses her writing on the environment, migration and rural communities. For more work by Sarah and to send anonymous tips, see www.sarah-tory.com. Our narrator today is Charles Gray, a prolific actor with over 40 years' experience. Charles's mellifluous voice gives us Sarah's essay with compassion and heart whilst rooting the essence of Americana within Abdul's struggles. As well as writing a screenplay about incarceration for pay, Charles co-hosts the podcast Conscious Compassion and offers listeners advice on coping with adversity in difficult times. If you don't want us, tell us to go back. Featured in the print edition of High Country News, a magazine dedicated to stories affecting the Western United States. With thanks to Gretchen King, Managing Digital Editor, as well as the editors and staff at HCN. Sarah tory for writing this important essay and allowing us to further share it, and Abdul Khan for sharing his story with Sarah. A special thanks to the production team at Let's Hear It, and as always, a heartfelt thank you to you, our listeners. Stay tuned till the end of the episode for an update on Abdul Khan.
1: This is Charles Gray reading Sarah Torrey's 2017 essay, If You Don't Want Us, Tell Us to Go Back. The Making of a California Prison Town Of all the details Abdul Khan remembers of his flight from his home country, Ghana, perhaps the clearest is the glint of light on the machetes. He was 25 years old, and his textile business was failing. There were few jobs in his isolated village in Ghana's mountainous interior, and Khan had started working for two gay men who ran an underground male prostitution business. In Ghana, homosexuality is not tolerated. You can be imprisoned for it, and you can be killed. When Khan's association became known, gossip began circulating that he, too, was gay. One day in the fall of 2014, his uncle sat him down for a talk. Renounce that friendship, his uncle said, or die. Khan had already heard rumors that his neighbors were looking to kill him before he infected their children. So he took his uncle's threat seriously. One night, as he lay awake and fearful in bed, a group of men brandishing machetes approached the house. Khan jumped out of bed and escaped through a window in the back. Khan ran to his two gay friends, the only people he trusted. They told him that Ghana was no longer safe for him, that he should flee the country, and they scraped together money for him to buy a ticket to Ecuador, which did not require a tourist visa. On November 6, 2014, Khan stepped off the plane into Quito, Ecuador's capital. Before he even left the airport, a man told him about a group of migrants, mostly from Somalia, Bangladesh, and Pakistan, who were trying to reach the United States and advised him to join them. America, the man said, was the only country where he would have rights. He introduced Khan to a smuggler who would arrange his journey to the U.S. border. Khan paid the man $800 of the $1,000 he had with him and three days later was on a bus heading north. He traveled almost 4,000 miles, passing through 10 countries via secret trails, in fishing boats and long canoes, through the uncharted jungle of the Darien Gap, through Panama, Central America, and Mexico, to the border at Tijuana. When border officials asked him why he had come to America, Khan told them he had fled Ghana and come to seek asylum. For months, all he had thought about was survival. But soon, he imagined, he would be on his way to New York, where he had family. Instead, Khan was detained. He spent his first night in the United States on a concrete floor in a cold, windowless room, at the San Isidro port of entry. For five days, he passed from one detention center to the next. Finally, Khan was brought to the Adelanto detention facility, where he would spend the next 16 months. In December of 2016, almost two years later, I met Khan in New York on a busy corner in the Bronx. Khan, whose name has been changed to protect his identity, wore dark jeans and Adidas sneakers, his boyish face framed by short curly hair and sideburns. Inside a Ghanaian restaurant, we shared a plate of fried plantains and beans, and he told me his story. It is a story that says much about the way the United States now treats asylum seekers and immigrants, even before the Trump administration's vitriolic rhetoric and attempted bans. It tells of the rise of corporate detention centers and their role in reshaping communities in rural areas, including the West. The moment Khan fled Ghana, his fate became intertwined with one such place. Adelanto, California, a struggling town on the edge of the Mojave Desert that has hitched itself to America's booming incarceration economy. Adelanto sits 85 miles northeast of Los Angeles. On a flat and featureless expanse dotted with Joshua trees, U.S. Route 395 runs through the middle of town, out of Southern California and toward a line of distant Ochre Mountains. Trucks barrel up and down the roadway that serves as Adelanto's main thoroughfare. But there is no real center to the town. Instead, a haphazard collection of tracked homes. Trailer parks, warehouses, gas stations, and fast food restaurants spread out over 56 square miles of desert. There are so many abandoned lots that the overwhelming impression is one of empty space. Adelanto, a town of 32,000, is home to three prisons. This was not a coincidence. A century ago, orchards covered parts of the Mojave Desert. Farmers grew apples, pears, plums, grapes, and alfalfa. Crops were watered by the Mojave River, which begins in the nearby San Bernardino Mountains. Its water supply, farmers believed, was inexhaustible. At the western edge of the valley, past the town of Victorville, Earl Holmes Richardson, an inventor and industrialist, envisioned a city with unlimited possibilities. Where soldiers returning from the Great War could recuperate, in the high desert's clean, dry air. Richardson sold one of his patents in 1915 and bought a parcel of land for $75,000, hoping to subdivide it into one-acre plots and develop a master-planned community. But vets had no interest in living so far out in the desert, and Richardson's vision never materialized. Instead, Adelanto grew up around the orchids gaining some renown for its fruit and cider. As agriculture intensified throughout the Victor Valley, excessive water use and a series of dry years shrank the Mojave River. Adelanto's farmers struggled, and when the Great Depression hit, many were forced out of business. The vacant land they left behind brought the U.S. military to the town's northern edge in 1941. The Air Corps established an advanced flying school for World War II, and by 1950, George Air Force Base served as a training ground for fighter jets and bombers. With the base came jobs and steady tax revenue. And in 1970, Adelanto Incorporated, becoming the smallest city in San Bernardino County, it was almost wholly reliant on a military economy, but planners hoped for more. Giant shopping malls, new homes, and new people to boost the tax base. By then, a few poultry ranchers were all that remained of Adelanto's agricultural past. In 1993, however, the base closed due to congressional realignments and closures at the end of the Cold War. People packed up and left, and property values cratered. Houses emptied, and lawns died. With the farms and base gone, Adelanto turned to prisons. During the 1980s, under increasingly stringent drug laws and harsh sentencing policies, demand for new prisons had grown. So had the belief that prisons could nourish economic development in rural communities. In California, the prison boom took off throughout the Central Valley and in the desert regions outside Los Angeles and San Diego in poor, rural towns with high black and Latino populations, too far from major metro areas for suburban growth. As Ruth Gilmore writes in Golden Gulag, the new prisons were sited on previously irrigated and cultivated land, taken out of production by the interrelated forces of drought, debt, and development. Adelanto got its first prison in 1991 the Adelanto Community Correctional Facility, which held inmates for the California Department of Corrections. In just 11 years, the number of prisoners in California had more than quadrupled. That growth trend continued across rural America. In the 1960s and 1970s, about four new prisons were built in small towns and rural communities each year, according to the Agriculture Department's Economic Research Service. During the 1980s, that figure increased to an annual average of 16. The following decade, the number jumped to 25, with a prison opening somewhere in rural America every 15 days. By 2006, two more prisons were sited near or within Adelanto's town limits. The High Desert Detention Center, a county facility, and a gigantic federal complex on the border with the neighboring town of Victorville. A few years later, the GEO Group, a Florida based private prison company, offered to buy the old Adelanto Community Correctional Facility for $28 million. Adelanto happily accepted, but the company had no plan to run an ordinary jail. Instead, GEO had its eye on the latest iteration of America's prison boom this one targeting immigrants. The county jail would be repurposed into the Adelanto Detention Center, housing asylum seekers and others caught in immigration bureaucracy. Adelanto's detainees are among the 40,000 people held every day in over 400 facilities nationwide by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE pending a decision in their immigration cases or while awaiting deportation. A fortified compound surrounded by high barbed wire fencing, the Atalanto Detention Center sits at the end of a paved road near an industrial zone on the outskirts of Atalanto. When Khan was brought there on December 11, 2014, it was the middle of the night, but he could still sense the confinement. He felt confused, he told me. This was not the America he had envisioned. Why, he wondered, was he being treated like a criminal? The guards gave him a blue jumpsuit and escorted him to a windowless dormitory. Soon, he learned about the segregation units used to isolate unruly detainees. By law, immigrant detention facilities are not supposed to be punitive, but the official distinction between detainees and prisoners seemed largely meaningless. Guards conducted daily head counts, usually five or six, each one up to an hour, during which time detainees had to remain in place by their beds. Khan had a particularly hard time with the handcuffs, which guards placed around his ankles and wrists any time he was transported outside the facility for a court appointment. He had broken no laws and not crossed the border illegally. He had simply asked for protection. He, like many of the other asylum seekers held in the detention center, had passed a credible fear interview and had no criminal record. Back in Ghana, Khan had always imagined America as a country of freedom, a country where basic human rights were protected. Why keep us locked up, he thought. If you don't want us, tell us to go back. Carrie Thomas is the former mayor of Adelanto. She has long red hair and a no-nonsense air. An Adelanto transplant who was born in the LA suburbs, she saw the high desert as an affordable place to live, where land was cheap and a comfortable middle-class life still in reach. Elected to city council in 2008, Thomas became mayor in 2010 and oversaw the GEO group's arrival. Adelanto had plenty of incentives to keep the detention center full, she told me in the fall of 2016, over an egg breakfast at Denny's. After the base closed, the town struggled to replace the lost jobs and revenue. Houses that once sold for 80000 to 100000 plummeted to half their value. It was horrible, Thomas said. Throughout the mid- and late-1990s and early 2000s, Money flowed into the town as new housing developments were built, part of the nationwide housing boom. For a while, things were good, Thomas said, but it didn't last. The 2008 recession hit, and Adelanto suffered another housing crash and another wave of sunken hopes. Thomas had dreamed of turning Adelanto, with all its space, into a town like Rancho Cucamanga, an hour south with its colossal malls and shining housing developments set against the San Gabriel Mountains. But the Adelanto she inherited was in dire financial straits. It was a really bad time to get into politics, Thomas said. She spent much of the next four years just trying to balance the budget. In the wake of 9-11, private prison companies like GEO saw a lucrative business opportunity in the government's immigration policies. Throughout rural Texas and the Southwest, new for-profit immigrant detention facilities sprang up, bolstered by more and more government contracts. In 2016, for instance, GEO's revenue was over $2 billion, 18% of which came from ICE, the highest of any government contractor. To protect its profits, the industry developed a number of tactics, such as incorporating so-called guaranteed minimums, into detention center contracts, ensuring the company gets paid for a certain number of beds whether or not they're filled. This arrangement gives ICE an incentive to funnel immigrants into detention, regardless of their circumstances. A 2014 U.S. Government Accountability Office report on immigration detention recommended that ICE place detainees whenever possible in facilities with guaranteed minimums to provide the agency with better assurance that it is cost-effectively managing detainee placement. Because GEO had been the most successful at incorporating guaranteed minimums into its contracts, its facilities are often used to fill local quotas. According to emails obtained through a FOIA request from Detention Watch and the Center for Constitutional Rights, John P. Longshore, the former director of Denver's ICE field office, wrote in 2013 that we must ensure we are maximizing GEO beds for cost savings. We will be getting emails and calls from ICE headquarters if they note we are not making good use of those cheaper beds. They already call me enough on stuff. When the GEO group offered to buy the Adelanto Community Correctional Facility in 2010, Thomas readily agreed. California was downsizing its overcrowded state prison system, which meant the town was about to lose its contract with the California Department of Corrections for the facility, a major source of revenue. Selling the facility balanced the city's budget for the next five years and brought a few hundred new jobs to Adelanto, where unemployment was at 22%. You can work at Statter Brothers or Del Taco or Denny's or in one of the few manufacturing places, Thomas said. But past that, we had no employment. For GEO, the deal offered plenty of perks, too. The facility was already built. The company just needed bodies to fill it. As part of the sale agreement, the town was obliged to secure the government contracts that would bring immigrant detainees to the newly named Adelanto Detention Facility. ICE would then pay GEO money based on the number of prisoners held in the facility. With the town serving as the middleman, GEO quickly expanded the facility to hold 1,300 detainees. Its contract with ICE included a 975-bed minimum occupancy rate, guaranteeing GEO roughly $40 million per year. According to documents obtained from a state records request filed by Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement, Civic, Adelanto was only paid a flat yearly $50,000 administrative fee from GEO for its initial 650-bed capacity, even though the company had expanded the facility to hold 1,300. I think it was a good deal, Thomas said. Maybe they could have bargained for more, she added, but with the post-recession economy still wobbly, it was unlikely. Besides, where her constituency was concerned, the facility was a boon. There's zero impact to our residents other than an economic driver for employment, she said. Unless you drive that road, which nobody does, you don't even know it's there. A few days after arriving at Adelanto, Khan met with an asylum officer who interviewed him about why he had fled Ghana and gave him a number of forms to fill out. He was hopeful he would be released while he waited for his court hearing, where he would present his story to an immigration judge. Under government policies, asylum seekers who pass their credible fear interview should be released from detention if their identity is sufficiently established, the person poses neither a flight risk nor a danger to the community, and no additional factors weigh against release. Khan thought he had all the papers required to prove his identity. He had financial documents showing he had family who could support him, and an uncle in New York to stay with. He assumed he would be released. Yet the ICE officers denied him parole, claiming that Khan's documents were insufficient. This kind of detention is not uncommon. According to a recent report by Human Rights First, ICE has increasingly refused parole for asylum seekers, even when they meet the official criteria. In 2012, 80% 80% of asylum seekers who passed their Credible Fear interview were granted parole. By 2015, the number had dropped to 47%. The sharp drop coincided with an influx of migrants from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, many of them asylum seekers. On June twentieth, 2014, Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, announced a plan to significantly expand detention capacity to detain and quickly deport Central Americans in an attempt to send a message to those seeking asylum or attempting to cross the border illegally. Caught up in that policy, Khan would have to prove his case from inside Adelanto. The prospect of indefinite detention terrified him a fear made worse by these smaller indignities he endured. Sometimes the meat served at mealtimes was moldy or rotten, compelling many detainees to buy much of their own food at the G.E.O. run commissary. But Khan had no money to spare. Often he barely ate. G.E.O. guards barred him from praying with other Muslim inmates, denying him an important part of his religious practice while Christian detainees were allowed to attend church three times per week. GEO later changed its policy in response to complaints. Khan felt powerless in the face of the discriminatory rules, but the threat of the segregation units, or SU, which mirror the solitary confinement cells used in prisons housing criminals, kept him in check. You want to fight for your rights, but if you fight too hard, you will be put in the SU, he said. Sometimes entire units experienced multi-day lockdowns as group punishment for one detainee's actions. If anything happens, they put us in our cells and lock the door, Khan said. He learned not to attract attention, to keep his anger and despair in check, to pray alone. Due to the backlog of immigration courts, which is now more than 500,000 cases long, asylum seekers can remain in detention for months and sometimes years while their cases are processed. Khan felt like he existed outside the law. That is not entirely wrong. Unlike criminal defendants, for example, Khan had no right to a lawyer. Like most immigration detainees and asylum seekers, He could not afford one and would have to represent himself. For the next six months, Khan waited to find out when he would have his asylum hearing. He tried to bolster his case, researching the repression of homosexuality in Ghana and instances where people were imprisoned or killed for aligning themselves with gay and lesbian rights. But detainees could only use the law library for an hour a day and had no access to the Internet and so Khan struggled to find information. He wanted to call friends and family to see if they could help, but he couldn't afford the high rates charged by Talton Communications, the detention center's for-profit phone service provider. Khan needed to convince a judge that he met the legal definition of a refugee, which meant proving a well-founded fear of persecution due to race, religion, nationality, Membership in a particular social group or political opinion. Successful cases rely on numerous documents, such as newspaper articles and eyewitness testimonies about the alleged persecution, David Fagan, an immigration lawyer in L.A., told me. For asylum seekers held in remote rural detention centers like Adelanto, that can be especially hard, he said due to lack of access to pro bono lawyers and legal aid groups. If you're in detention, how are you going to get those things from Ghana? How are you going to get stuff interpreted? Who will pay for that translation? How's he supposed to communicate? Even if Khan had been able to pay for a lawyer, he would have had a hard time finding one. Immigration attorneys like Fagan rarely take cases involving Adelanto detainees because of the long commute. A round trip drive from LA can take most of the day, and there's a low chance of success. Adelanto's six immigration judges are among the harshest in the country. The most lenient of them denies 75% of asylum cases, according to data compiled by researchers at Syracuse University. Among the two harshest, The denial rate is over 91%. Early in his career, most of the immigrant detainees Fagan dealt with were in two facilities closer to downtown L.A. The San Pedro Processing Center on Terminal Island and the Mira Loma Detention Center in Lancaster, run by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. The shorter drives meant he could take on more clients who were detained, he said. Terminal shut down in 2014 after an internal review found the facility too unsafe, and ICE ended its contract for Miraloma in 2012, transferring detainees to Adelanto, in part because the GEO contract was cheaper, even though it raised the costs for detainees. For Fagan, Adelanto cases became too much to bear. "You feel bad," he said because there's nothing you can do to help them. The proceeds from Adelanto's GEO deal temporarily plugged the town deficit, but failed to generate the substantial long-term revenue that the town needed. By 2014, Adelanto was once again contemplating bankruptcy. Around that time, a pair of private developers sought out Adelanto for another private prison. The GEO group, meanwhile, came forward with plans to expand the Adelanto detention facility to 1,940 beds, making it the largest immigrant detention facility in California. Thomas supported the expansion. The town was $2.6 million in the red and needed the additional money that the additional detainees would bring in. As the November 2014 election approached, Richard Kerr, an upstart candidate, ran on a platform that included no new jails. Kerr narrowly defeated Thomas and is still mayor at the time of writing. Last fall, I met him at his office in the Adelanto City Hall, a stucco, faux-Spanish colonial-style building overlooking the swath of empty desert where the GEO prisons sit. A former Marine, Kerr has a mustache and often wears jeans to work. He has, in his own words, a maverick approach to city politics. Almost immediately following his election, the new mayor changed his mind about prisons. Once he found out he could renegotiate the per-bed rate the GEO paid Adelanto for each detainee held in its facilities, Kerr decided that the prisons were not as bad as they were often made out to be. We need the money in the city, he told me. According to the mayor, GEO had no problem paying a higher rate, and Kerr appreciated the company's donation to the rodeo and the local Christmas fund. GEO also paid the town $175,000 to fund an additional police officer. They're 100% behind us, he said. The city council approved both the new prison and the GEO expansion. On July 1, 2015, the Adelanto Detention Facility got 640 more beds, specifically designed to house women detainees. The new beds would bring in an extra 21 million for GEO. Along with another GEO-run state prison, there were over 9,000 people behind bars within a seven-mile radius of Adelanto, almost a third of the town's total population. Renegotiating the GEO contract, Kerr told me, means Adelanto now receives $80,000 per month from GEO in bed tax for its new facilities, an eighth of the town's total budget. Still, like most officials I spoke with, Kerr would rather not dwell on Adelanto's prisons or the role they play in the town's economy. Instead, much of our hour-long conversation revolved around marijuana. Which Kerr believes is on the cusp of transforming Adelanto from down and out prison town into a haven for California's nascent medical marijuana industry. Driving through town, however, it's easy to see why no one on the current city council is ready to give up on the GEO group and the money it pumps into Adelanto. On the south side, a few newer housing developments have cropped up. But north along the old Main Street, vacant lots separate many of the buildings. Farther down is a thrift store, then a liquor mart, then a neighborhood of faded one story homes with dusty yards. Bartlett Avenue, named for the pears that once grew in Adelanto's orchards, dead ends at the perimeter of the old Air Force Base, where bits of trash flap on a barbed wire fence. For Adelanto, Prisons had been one of the town's few bright spots. Jesse Flores, Adelanto's economic development consultant, told me, We view them as good neighbors, as assets to our community. After six months in detention, Khan still had no verdict on his case. He was eligible for a bond hearing, which offered him a chance at release, but the judge set the bond at $28,000, far beyond what Khan could afford. And so, like many detainees with limited means, he remained in Adelanto. A couple of weeks later, in May 2015, the same judge denied his asylum case, citing lack of evidence. Unless Khan appealed the decision, he would be deported. Khan didn't see much point in appealing. He would have to continue his fight from inside Adelanto, a process that could take years and most likely would not yield any new evidence. For Khan, remaining in Adelanto seemed even worse than what he might face back in Ghana. It was better, he told the judge, for him to go back and face the consequences. I'm ready for anything, he said. Khan signed his deportation order and prepared for the worst. But before he could be released, immigration officials had to obtain a travel document from Ghana essentially a guarantee that it would accept its citizen back once the U.S. had deported the person. In the meantime, Khan waited in Adelanto. Three months passed. An ICE officer told him they were still waiting to receive the documents from Ghana, which is among around two dozen countries that often delay repatriating people from the U.S., Almost a year into Khan's detention in October 2015, he and a group of other detainees wrote a letter to ICE requesting to speak to Gabriel Valdez, the assistant field office director for Adelanto. They wanted to know why they were still locked up, even after many had signed their deportation orders. When their request went unacknowledged, Khan and more than 90 detainees, mostly asylum seekers, began refusing to eat. Theirs became the fourth hunger strike at U.S. immigration detention facilities in less than three weeks. When ICE officials finally met with Khan and the other hunger strikers, they tried to assure them that the government was still working on getting their travel documents. When the men asked for better food and more respect from the GEO guards, ICE officials were unreceptive. You guys are refugees, they were told, according to Khan. You can't ask for things. The GEO group referred all questions about the Atalanto Detention Facility to ICE. In an emailed response, an ICE representative wrote that detention facilities are subject to ICE's rigorous detention standards. Those requirements, she added, reflect the agency's commitment to maintain safe, secure, and humane conditions for those in ICE custody. Under a 2001 Supreme Court ruling, Khan could petition a judge for release from detention, but only if he could prove that his removal was not significantly likely to occur in the foreseeable future. A claim nearly impossible to prove, says Judy Rabinovitz, a lawyer with the American Civil Liberties Union, who worked on the 2001 case ruling that indefinite detention raised serious constitutional problems. The government can just keep saying, oh, we're working on it, so a lot of times people end up in detention much longer. For Khan, the endless waiting and uncertainty were a special kind of torment. I stopped having hope, he told me. A lot of people give up. This is a common phenomenon among asylum seekers, even when they have a strong case, Rabinovitz says. The effect of detention is that it makes people want to stop fighting. At least some immigration judges have questioned the escalating use of detention. In October 2016, a group of former immigration judges wrote to Johnson, the former Secretary of Homeland Security, expressing concern that the expansion comes at the expense of basic rights and due process. People eligible for protection under U.S. and international laws are kept in jail-like facilities operated by private prison companies or local jails contracted by ICE. A shocking 86% of immigrants in detention are unable to obtain legal representation, the judges noted. The system creates a deep sense of despair for the people trapped within it. During Khan's detention, eight people attempted suicide, and 115 were placed on suicide watch. In 2015, Civic and the Detention Watch Network chronicled numerous reports of sexual assault and abuse. The poor medical care led to two deaths. In late March of 2017, a Nicaraguan man facing deportation hanged himself. Osmar Epifanio González Gaba, who did not have a criminal record, had been detained at Adelanto for three months. Three weeks later, Sergio Alonso López, a 55-year-old Mexican detainee, began vomiting blood and later died in hospital. He had a history of serious medical issues and had been deported to Mexico three times previously. One day in the spring of 2016, one year, three months, and three weeks into his detention, a guard told Khan he was being released under supervision. ICE had decided to let him out while the agency continued its efforts to get his travel documents. At first, Khan thought the guards were lying. But when the guards gave him back his old clothes and told him to change out of his prison uniform, he began to believe. On March 23, 2016, Khan was set free. In the glare of the midday desert sun, a woman named Barbara Pamplone was waiting to pick him up. Pamplone, who is 79, regularly makes the four-hour round-trip drive from Los Angeles to visit with inmates as part of a volunteer group. She found Khan just as he was walking out from the Adelanto Detention Center's blue doors. He was just a really nice young man she told me later. Pamplone makes something of a hobby picking up Adelanto detainees, and she never regrets it. You take them to a Burger King and you could be taking them to the Hilton, she said. They're walking on air. They're free. One of Khan's relatives, who lived in Canada, wired Pamplone $300, enough for a bus ticket to New York, where an uncle lived. Two days after his release, Khan said goodbye to Pamplone at the Greyhound station in L.A. and set off east to endure whatever fate had in store. He rode out of the L.A. sprawl, through the San Gabriels and past Adelanto, a prison town in a struggle for survival, past the Mojave National Preserve and into the desert. He was astonished by its emptiness, vast and barren the mountains rising in the distance. Peering through the bus window, Khan was captivated by their shape, like fortresses of sand, and the way they shimmered, reaching toward the sky, like something out of a dream. Though the memory of his incarceration would remain with Khan, coming back in flashes of pain and anger, it was over. Adelanto was behind him and the shining desert was ahead. It was hard to hold a grudge in all that open space. I had never seen a place like that, Khan told me. It was... I don't know how to describe it, he said, pausing to search for the right words. It made me so happy. I was going to live my life.
2: That was If You Don't Want Us, Tell Us to Go Back by Sarah Torrey, read by Charles Gray, with an introduction by Daniel Chutkai. I'm Chris Ogle, audio engineer and co-producer for this series. In producing this story, we spoke to Sarah Torrey, who told us she spoke to Abdul Khan a year ago, and at the time, he was working in Montreal and doing well. We wish him and all the seekers well in their journeys. What did you think of the episode? Join the conversation on Twitter or Facebook at Let's Hear It Audio. Tune in for our next story as Nikki Thomas takes us on a whirlwind tour of the world through the mind of one anonymous writer as she struggles with mental illness in search of a place to call home. Join us for To London With Love. Thanks for listening to the Let's Hear It podcast.